Amen. We're looking at Matthew chapter 11 this morning once again. Matthew chapter 11, if you're following along in the Bible in the pew, that's on, once again, page 969. And I think after today, we're actually gonna make it to page 970. So, uh, so we're just trucking along here, aren't we? So, But uh, 969 in the pew or in your copy of the word of God, uh, Matthew chapter 11. I'm gonna go ahead and read. We're gonna be looking at really the, the first verses two through six this morning, but we're gonna go ahead and read verse one just to kind of see the transition from our last series into our series that uh, we're beginning today. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, that is the discourse that we just finished, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And they said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the words of our Savior this morning. And what a sacred and, and wonderful privilege it is to be able to study them and draw out their implications for us. Someone has said, I don't remember who I heard this from. I want to say it was uh, Harold Wilmington, but he used to say that uh, the Bible, we know the Bible is from God. And one of the reasons why is because the Bible is not a book that we could write if we would, nor is it a book that we would write if we could. And the reason he says that is because even as we read through the scriptures and we read through all the, the heroes of the faith that we grew up learning about in Sunday school, and yet through all of them, we see that the Bible is very realistic about their failures and their flaws. For example, Abraham had no sooner expressed and obeyed the call of God and went into the promised land when he threw his wife under the bus and took her into Egypt. He did that a couple of times, almost seemingly after a great, uh, after a great act of faith, he would then just blow it, seems like. Isaac and Jacob were terribly favoritistic fathers who favored certain sons over others. Moses had a temper and would throw the tablets of the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments, onto the ground and smash them. He would eventually, he would eventually hit the rock with his staff and, and say, shall we bring this water to you, robbing glory from God? Don't even get me started on the judges. Those guys were just jerks. Uh, terribly flawed heroes. David was a flawed man. Of course, we know that his flaw with Bathsheba and, and Uriah, but even before that, you know, he did pretty good. He said, I'm not gonna lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, and he gave Saul a break, but boy, in the middle of those two instances, uh, Nadab disrespected him. He suited up his army, and he was about to go kill him, and it took uh, literally an intervention of God himself to, to stop him from doing that. 
And, and it, doesn't even, it doesn't even stop in the New Testament. We see the disciples all through the Gospels. We're gonna see that they are petty. They are disruptive. They are weak. They, are, they argue. They, um, they argue with people, other people. They are constantly trying to best one another. Uh, just all kinds of stuff. People who write books about their heroes generally don't write about all of these flaws and that, that these are just normal people. Sometimes they are faithful, sometimes they are not. They are people that are full of contradiction, just like us, just like every one of us. We are people of contradiction, people who are sometimes faithful and we do really good, and then in other areas, we just absolutely blow it. And that's what it means to be human and that's where we come to John the Baptist this morning. John the Baptist, you all, you all know him, we'll say more about him, but just to say a little bit about his culture that he's coming from, back during this time, there were, there were many views, many understandings about what kind of Messiah that was going to come. People have tried to kind of put it together and try to come up with kind of a unified Jewish idea of, of what kind of Christ they were expecting and, and what they've discovered is that it's indiscoverable, that it's just absolutely impossible. You just simply cannot do it. In fact, according to one scholar, it says that their view of Messiah was the center of a vast mass of confused, involved, and even contradictory notions. There were just all kinds of ideas, and, but there's only one thing that they did agree on, and that was this, that when the Messiah came, Israel would be made great again. That's the one thing they agreed on. And so as a result, when John the Baptist comes onto the scene in Matthew chapter three, you can, you can feel the excitement in the air that people are going to him and they're being baptized and, and he's not even performing any miracles or anything like that. He is just preaching that repent, the kingdom of heaven is near and it draws all kinds of crowds and you can feel the electricity in the air. You can, you can feel the excitement among them that Messiah is finally going to be here. It was electric. And it attracted many, many people. And so just like back then, there's a lot of confusion today over what kind of savior Jesus really is. Some people say he's a good teacher. Some people say he was a wise man. Some people say he was basically like an indulgent grandfather who we can kind of mildly ignore when things are okay, but when we want something, that's the time to, to go get him. People say all kinds of things about what kind of savior Jesus is, what it is that he has saved us from, what is he, and what has he done? And the truth is, we talk about those out there, but in reality, some of that culturistic ideas, some of those false ideas kind of make their way into our hearts as well. So that we are not always consistent on how we understand Christ. We all have what I like to call a confessional belief. And, and as members of Calvary Baptist Church, your confession is the Baptist faith and message. And it's very strong on the deity of Christ. We understand confessionally who Christ is, but there's also a functional confession that we often live. And, and very often our functional confession does not match our confession, our verbal confession. 
We go through highs and lows, sometimes faithful, sometimes we're not. And just like the heroes of the Bible, we are full of contradiction. I mean, is that, is that fair? Uh, I know it's fair in my own heart. And I'm sure it's fair in yours as well. If you don't think so, then maybe we need to have a different conversation. But that's why this next major division, we're looking at Matthew chapter 11 to all the way through 13, chapter 52. And this next section is all about the faithful response to Christ and how to understand his kingship in a world that mostly rejects it. How do we understand the kingdom of God? How do we understand our response to God? And more to the point, how do we understand those who do not respond to God? And how does that relate to the overall kingship of Christ and how he rules the world? And in chapters 11 through 12, we're gonna see kind of a, kind of a mixture of responses to him, how those respond. Some people are gonna respond faithfully. Some others are gonna respond with controversy. And it's all gonna culminate in the next major discourse of of Christ, where he gives us wonderful kingdom parables, where he's going to explain the kingdom of heaven and how it is making its way into the world. And so that's where we're going with this. Essentially, you can boil all of that down to one simple phrase, what should the conviction of a disciple be in this world? What is our conviction? What do we hold to the Savior? And it all begins with this simple question, is Jesus the one that we are looking for? It all begins with that simple question, are you the one? Is Christ the one? Is he really our Savior? Is he really our King? Is he really the answer that we're looking for? Is Jesus really the one. There was a song that was released a while back, uh, years ago, but uh, you're still the one. Do you remember that? Still the one, you know, still the one. Uh, I don't know why that's been going through my head all week. So am I the only sinner in the room or does other people? Okay. So is Jesus really the one that we're looking for? And we've really just going to be looking at John's question this morning. Let's look at it. John's question in verses two and three, he comes, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. Now, I wanna stop right there for a minute. We have not seen John the Baptist since chapter four, verse 12, which I believe was back in 2022 at some point. Maybe, uh, maybe February or March, I can't remember, but it's, it's been a long time ago. So let's, so let's reacquaint ourselves with, with John the Baptist for just a moment. You remember in, my, in Matthew 3, he came strongly onto the scene and, and preaching and baptizing. And, and we're gonna skip ahead a little bit, but in chapter four, verse 12, we see that John was arrested. And why is that? Well, we're gonna skip ahead just a few chapters to Matthew 14 for just a moment. In Matthew 14, we discover in verses two and, excuse me, three and four, 
It says that Herod has seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. In other words, what had happened was this particular Herod, um, I can't remember which one he was at the moment. Herods are just a very confusing bunch. But anyway, this particular Herod, uh, John had been preaching against him because essentially what he did was he stole his sister-in-law and took her for his own wife. And John was preaching against this and, and the Herods were, were very, um, very um, um, scared. What, what's the word I'm looking for? They're Paranoid, yes. They were, very, they were a very paranoid family. And so the Herods constantly had spies all throughout the land of Israel. And undoubtedly, one of these spies had heard John's sermon where he was preaching against Herod. And so John was arrested and he was put in prison. According to Josephus, the prison that he was in was Macarus. You can, you can still see this prison today. You can look it up online. There's ruins that are there. Uh, really cool place, just like all of Herod's palaces were. It was about, it was on the east side of the Dead Sea, uh, on top of a mountain. And it just, just goes to so for a moment. You know, it says that John heard about the deeds of the Christ in, in prison, and it just shows how far-reaching Jesus's ministry was really going. He heard about the deeds of the Christ, and he sent word. And Believe it or not, there's a, there's a big question today. What deeds was it that John heard about? Was it, was it his healing? Was it his teaching? Was it his arguments with the Pharisees and religious leaders? Was it all of that? You know, I think the really bigger question here is, why did John ask this? It seems a little out of character for him, doesn't it? This is the same one who leaped in his mother's womb when he sensed the presence of his Savior in the womb of Mary in Luke chapter one. This is the same one who cried out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when he saw Christ. This is the same one who saw the dove descend upon Christ, and the, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descend on Christ and heard from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who upon baptizing Christ said, I need to be baptized by you. And you yet you come to me. I wonder if John's legs were numb like mine was when he got out of the water. <laughs> This, and now he has to ask, are you really the one? That seems odd, doesn't it? In fact, beloved, it, it bothered, it's so odd that it bothered the reformers. They, just about every one of the reformers, and uh, I'll, I'll quote Calvin here. Calvin said that it's absolutely foolish to believe that John had doubts, that he is sending his disciples to Christ in order not so that John will be rest assured in his mind, but so that his disciples will make the transition from John over to Christ. So it really wasn't for John's sake he was asking, but it was for his disciples' sake. I, I don't see any evidence of that. I don't see any evidence of that at all. John is very clearly the one who's inquiring here. 
And so most people today will say that it was John's doubts that were coming out. And they'll usually say it's for one of two reasons. It's maybe a theological reason because John, he knew that the Messiah was coming, but Christ was not the kind of Messiah that everyone was really expecting. John had preached fire. He had said he will come with fire and with the spirit and he will, the, the ax is at the root of the tree and he's ready to chop it down. And yet Jesus is healing. Jesus is tender. Jesus is gentle. His heart is lowly and gentle. And it's not the kind of Messiah that John was expecting. He knows the Messiah is coming, but he's asking, are you, are you the right one? Was I wrong? Or some people will say it's because he was in prison, he was alone, he was depressed, he was anxious, reaching toward the end of his life, and he just needed to know. His faith was wavering, and he needed to know. I don't know about that because he obviously had access to his disciples, and we know from Mark that Herod would even go down there and listen to him preach as well, so... Bottom line is, why did John have to ask this question? I have absolutely no idea because Matthew does not tell us. But I am so glad that he did. I'm so glad that he did. Because is this not one of the most important questions we can ask? Is Jesus the one we're looking for or should we wait for another? We can relate to that, can't we? Christ, are you really the savior that I need? Are you really what I'm looking for? This is such an important question, and especially to our, our young people. Let, let me talk to our youth and our, our students for just a moment. Because guys, your, your friends and, and your culture that you're growing up in is giving you all kinds of false promises of fulfillment. You, you see all of these lives that are presented on social media like they are so great. And like, like all you have to do is your life has to be perfect like this. And, and because it's not so perfect, you, you fall into anxiety and depression and things like that. And, and you think that that's what you should be looking for is that, is that perfect life where I'm relatively free from anxiety and issues. There are all kinds of promises out there that if you just live your truth, you will find fulfillment. And that's the, that's the savior that the world has you looking for. But it's not just our children. Look at our young adults. They're getting started in the world and, and they're struggling to make the money last. They're, they're learning responsibility and they're, they're having to find their way in the world and, and they're struggling just to meet some of their basic needs in life. And for some reason, God decided that's the best time to have kids. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so it just makes it that much more difficult. Have you bought diapers lately? Oh my goodness, they're expensive right? <laughs> yeah, they're crazy. And so, and so you're, you're in this, this place in life and you're wondering, it's like, is this, what do I need? If I could only make a little more money, if I could only do a little mo bit more, if I could only do all of that. Maybe you're in midlife and you're figuring out that all of the places that you imagine yourself that you would be by this time in your life, they're becoming more and more and more out of reach. And you're starting to discover that some of your lifelong dreams are unachievable. And you're trying to decide, what am I gonna do? How am I going to, I keep telling Roxanne, I'm just a few years away from my Harley. 
but I, I'm thinking that that's getting more and more out of reach. And so what are you gonna do? Maybe you're facing retirement and your whole identity is wrapped up in what you do. Your whole identity is wrapped up in your job and now that's being taken away from you. And you're wondering, what am I gonna do? Maybe you've been to more funerals this year than anything else because all of your friends are passing away and you know that there's far fewer days ahead than there are behind and you're facing that moment and maybe you're wondering, what is my legacy? What have I left behind? What am I looking for? And in all of those things have one thing in common, where can I find fulfillment? Where can I find fulfillment? Is Jesus the one we're looking for or should we be looking for something else? So I'm so glad John asked this question. I don't know why he did, but I'm so glad he did, amen? And so let's look at Jesus's response. In verses four through six, Jesus answered them and said, go and tell John what you hear and see. I want you to notice what Jesus does not do here. He doesn't, he doesn't just say yes or no. He could have done that. He's God. He could have done that if he wanted to. He could have snapped his finger and John's heart could have been fully confirmed from a distance do you remember when, when the, the guy came up and said, my servant is on, the, is on her deathbed, please will you heal her? And he said, just go back home, it's done. He went back home and it was done. Jesus could have done that for John here. He could have done that. He could have done that for anyone. And yet what does he do? He says, go and report back to John what you hear and what you see. In fact, that word here in, in six verses, it appears three different times in this verse. John heard. Go back and tell him what you hear and see. And so, very important. According to Luke chapter seven, the parallel text, he invited them to stay for a little while. And, and while they stayed, he actually performed miracles in front of them for up to maybe up to an hour or so. And he allows them to experience his work, his fulfillment. By the way, this is not unusual because in John chapter five, you may remember John, and in John chapter five, Jesus is calling forth witnesses to who he is. He's in the midst of an argument with the, with the religious leaders again. And the religious leaders accuse him, you're testifying of yourself and therefore it's not valid, which by the way, they're right according to their law. And so Jesus says, here's my witness. The father is witness. I am testifying of myself. But look what he also says in chapter five. He says in verse 36, I believe it is, he says that if the works that my father gives me, these, these testify to me as well. He says in another, another place, if you do not believe my words, then believe my works that I am doing. If you cannot believe me, that's fine. But look at what you see and look at what you hear. Believe the works that the Father has given me and you will know who I am. And it's not just that these works are powerful. He's not just acting like a magician here. 
But what he's doing is he's pointing to certain works. He's pointing to certain things that are signs of something that is very important. I love how the Reformation Study Bible, I know some of you are using that study Bible, and I love how it points you to Isaiah chapter 35, verses five and six. In fact, I invite you to just look at that on the board. I believe it's back there, isn't it? Really? Wow, that's like the second one. Okay, Isaiah chapter 35, verses five and six. In fact, I'll go back to verse four since it's not on the board. It says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And watch this, what'll happen when he saves you? The eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then the lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams from the desert and on and on and on. These are all signs that when God comes to save his people, these are the kinds of things that's gonna happen. In Isaiah 61, verse one, I get that one. My word, all right. Isaiah 61, one says that I have come to preach and have the good news proclaimed to the poor. And all of these things are pointers to the messianic age that when God comes through the Messiah, the, essentially what is happening is that the effects and the things of the curse are going to be reversed because Christ is going to come and save us from our sins. And when Christ reverses the curse, he will also reverse the effects of the curse. And so it's not that people's greatest needs are to have their blind eyes open. It's not that their greatest need is to have their deaf ears open. It's not that their greatest need is so that those who cannot walk can walk. Their greatest needs are that their sins will be forgiven. And all of these healings and signs and miracles point to that. That's what the faith healers get wrong. He's not healing for healing's sake. He's not healing so that you can be a happy, well-adjusted sinner. He is healing to point you to the greater healing that you need, healing from your sin. That's what you need. And so John, Jesus points to John, to those disciples back in verse five. He says, go and tell them what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. The gospel has come. And it is doing its work. When Messiah comes, the curse and sin and hell will be defeated and all of the effects will be reversed. This present age will pass away and all things will be made new in Christ. He is the one. He is the one. Look in Revelation very back of your Bible, Revelation 21. Just gonna read a few verses. I know this one's not back there, by the way. Figure it's pretty easy to find. Revelation 21, the first seven verses, it's, it's just worth it to preach all of this. 
to, to say all of this. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore because the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers, beloved, that is you, that is us in Christ. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Hallelujah. And that's what Christ is pointing to. He's pointing to all of these works. The present age is passing away. Christ says, go and tell John, here is the beginning of all these things. Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus Christ is the one we are looking for. Whether you are youth looking for acceptance, significance, looking for family, whatever it is, Christ is what you're looking for. Whether you are a young adult trying to start out in life, building those habits and convictions and all of those things, Christ is who you're looking for. Whether you are middle-aged and figuring out that your, your life is not taking the route that you wanted it to, beloved, you're not looking for what you wanted it to. Christ is what you're looking for. Whether you are in retirement and fear that you're losing your identity, Christ is what you're looking for. And if you are facing death and you know your transition is coming soon, don't fear. Christ is who you're looking for. Every stage of life, it is Christ and Christ alone. Accept him by faith. When we come to Christ, he slowly but surely renews us and makes us more like him, recreates us into his image through the power of his spirit working in us. Beloved, he has made us new. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses 17 and 18. It says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things, the former things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. Oh, sinner, aren't you tired of the old? Aren't you tired of the broken promises? Aren't you tired of the things that promise fulfillment but only disappoint? Aren't you tired of chasing the endless fantasy of life that social media sells you? Aren't you tired of those things that promise close connection with family and friends and yet all it brings is division and heartache? Aren't you tired of being angry all the time? Disappointed, feeling rejected, alone, anxious? Aren't you tired of the old? 
Don't you want to be in the new? Don't you want to be made new? Is Jesus the one you're looking for? Yes, he is. He is the one. So that's why he ends by saying, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. It's just like the Beatitudes we saw in Matthew chapter five, the, the handbook, if you will, the, of Christian life and discipleship, kind of, that, kind of that pocket manual of discipleship that we looked at. And we talked about what it means to be blessed. It means to, to walk with God, for God to be, for you to be God's people and he to be your God. And just now, he's also saying, once again, bringing another beatitude, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me, who is not scandalized by me. The one who does not stumble over me and looks for something else. When we come to Christ, we have the blessed life. Walking with God, he is our God. And we are his people. So how can we come into that blessed life? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never known Christ as your savior. How can you come into that blessed life? Well, first you need to understand who God is. He's the loving creator of the world. He created everything around us. He created us. He created human beings to manage his creation, if you will, to rule his dominion under him in perfect harmony? Yes, not that way, is it? The reason why is because we've rebelled against him, every single one of us, as a people and also individually. We say that, God, shove off. We don't want you to be our king. We want your crown to be placed on our head. And we reject him. We fail to be like him. And we fail to obey him. And that's what the Bible calls sin. This high treason against your king. And the problem is we make a mess of things, don't we? We make a mess of society. We make a mess of our lives. We make a mess of, of everything. And not just that, but there's coming a day. God has appointed a day that he is going to judge sin through the one that he has raised from the dead. And who is that? That's Christ, his son. See, because Christ, God loves you so much, he prepared another way that God himself, God the son, came in human flesh and he lived absolutely perfectly under God the father's rule, never breaking a single commandment, never failing to be like God, never sinning from the point of birth to death. The Bible says he became as a slave. He became as a servant and obeyed even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died in our place. He faced his own wrath for us so that we do not have to. And because that was enough, he was raised on the third day absolutely victorious, conquering death, conquering sin. He died for us in order that we may be forgiven and he raised for us in order that we may have new life in him. And now he's at the right hand of God 
as God's new king over the earth, wearing the crown. And he offers himself to you as a savior from your sins. Beloved, you don't have to face the wrath of God. You don't have to face the penalty of your sins because Christ lovingly offers to take them away from you. And the response is simply this, that you must turn from your sins, submit to Christ as your new king and trust in him alone for full payment of your sins. And you will be forgiven. You will be in the kingdom of God and you will have the blessed life. Keep in mind, the blessed life doesn't mean cars and houses and all the stuff that some preachers on TV sell you. The blessed life means that you'll be walking with God and that he will be your God and you will be his son or daughter. So if you're here this morning and you know this truth and you've accepted it into your life, you've received the word and you wanna confess that, I invite you. Come and confess that in baptism. Tell the world I'm identifying with Christ. This is my confession now. I'm going to be walking with God, submitting to Christ. That's what he told you to do, to be baptized. That's how we confess our faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, well, I've done that a long time ago. What should I do? Be ready to answer this question for others. Be ready to answer this question for your children, for your grandchildren, for anyone who asks, and show the answer in our lives. Walk with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he gives you. That's how he's the one we're looking for. That's how we come into that life, through the power of the Spirit. Is Jesus who we're looking for? Yes. Stop looking for another. He gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths that Christ spoke in his earthly life. Lord, I thank you for John the Baptist, that you perfectly prepared his way. And Lord, whether it was through doubt, whether it was through depression, or whether it was for his own disciples, we don't know why he had to ask this question. But we're so thankful that he did. Because Lord, it is the question that we ask every time we wake up in the morning. Lord, I pray that for every person here, the last thing we think about at night is you. The first thing we ask in the morning is how I can glorify God today and walk with him. Lord, I pray if there's one in here who doesn't know you as savior, that they would come to know you today, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we are pleading for souls. We are begging you to save people. Lord, I think of the great prayer of Charles Spurgeon. Save your elect and then elect some more. Lord, we wanna see a mighty work of God in Batesville, Arkansas. Last count, there are 15,000 people here who have no affiliation with any Christian label whatsoever. That doesn't even count the ones that are not teaching the truth this morning. Lord, we pray for all of them we plead for their souls. Save them, Father. Save them, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, do your work. 
may it be a mighty work. And Lord, every morning when I wake up, help me to stop asking, should I look for another? Lord, make me faithful in you. Help me to walk with you. For you've given me everything I need for life and godliness. If you're here this morning and that is your prayer, I, I, you need someone to pray with you or maybe you wanna receive the gospel this morning. Maybe you're saying I've received the gospel but I need to confess it in baptism. Maybe you're saying I wanna join a faithful teaching Bible believing church. Whatever your need is, I invite you to come this morning. You don't have to come to the front. You can speak to one of our deacons, one of our godly men. You can speak to one of our godly women, ladies, if you're more comfortable. Whatever your need is, I invite you to take action. Go speak to someone. Seek out prayer. Seek out the help that we need. We're all just broken people, helping broken people. And Christ is what we're looking for. Let's stand together and reflect on what we've heard.